unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Coming up on this week's show, my pleasure to welcome my former WGTO colleague Todd Wright to the show. We'll talk all things Tampa Bay, plus our Dallas Cowboys, and the uh, Brady v. Belichick, and also some fantasy football, which Todd is an expert at, runs numerous leagues. Todd is in the virtual green room and will join us in just a few moments. So... As I mentioned, we will talk about with Todd the Brady-Belichick reunion last night in New England. The Bucks escaped with the win, 1917, and uh, they had their little hug. And, okay, now we can stop talking about that for a while <laughs> after that date was circled on the calendar. And uh, now all the hype can move elsewhere. Also, as I mentioned, we'll talk with Todd about the Dallas Cowboys. We're both big fans of the boys. And... Uh, it would be interesting to see if I can keep my own advice. I'm always telling you, slow down. It's a week-to-week business in the NFL, but I do like the 3 and one start so far. MLB 162, the final day of the season with some dramatic stuff. The Dodgers and Giants playing for the division title in the National League West. The Giants get that. The Dodgers now have to play the one-game playoff wild card with the St. Louis Cardinals who have been <laughs> smoking hot down the stretch and we had four teams for two spots for the wild card and uh, our Joe Finger our ba- one of our baseball guys had called <laughs> at least said wished they would get the four way tie about a month ago and boy that almost happened uh, it was between Seattle, Toronto New York and Boston Red Sox and Yankees secure those spots, and they start the AL wildcard on Tuesday night. So uh, the one thing I will say that baseball does not get right on their pivotal day of the season is they've got to get those games on television. And I know if you're worried about going against the NFL on Sunday, then figure out another plan, but you got to make all those games available. I know MLB Network does the the Red Zone you know, MLB Tonight thing where they go from game to game, and it's better than nothing. You know, I'll, I'll say that. But, uh, you know, with, with Turner and ESPN, uh, you got to think that they, and Fox, you got to think they can get those games on because you got, you know, multiple Turner channels. You got FS1, uh, you've got ESPN, and they can, you know, they can use ABC on a Sunday afternoon. So I'm not sure why MLB comes up short in that department. And from college football, Cincinnati gets it done against Notre Dame. And now they're the fifth-ranked team in the country. They're still, <laughs> you see, I knew they were going to get in the top four. But uh, they have uh, gotten that climb up. And as I've mentioned, will what will happen if Cincinnati runs the table and they're undefeated? Will they get the credit they deserve? Or will, oh, this year Notre Dame was overrated. Which I think they're overrated many years. Uh, in this one included, but you're going to South Bend, break a long home winning streak, and uh, take down the number nine team in the country. And boy, that was a that was critical stuff in the fourth quarter when the Irish cut it to four, and the Bearcats, a big boy drive to answer to get a touchdown from Desmond Ritter, and a great performance there. So uh, the Bearcats. Trying to take dead aim on the college football playoff. We'll see what happens. 
All right, now, once again, happy to have back on the show my former WGTO colleague, Todd Wright. He, of course, longtime national and local sports talk radio host, who now, of course, is a fantasy football and golf tour entrepreneur and does some podcasts as well. Todd, it is great to have you back on the show, my friend. You make it sound like I'm really busy when, in fact, I'm approaching now, not there yet, 10 years since going into retirement from full-time and even part-time television and radio work. But yes, I do keep busy uh, with various appearances in Tampa Bay on Spectrum Bay News 9. I'm going to have some uh, more appearances this fall uh, on um, Central Florida Spectrum News 13. I'm taking something with them this week. And, uh, yeah, the golf tournaments are are going well. I just hosted my first 36-hole event over the weekend. And uh, the Fantasy Football Podcast, amazingly, Jeff, is in Season 6. And uh, I've really learned a lot about podcasting now that I've been at it for six years and and how to put a podcast together and make it appealing for people that want to listen to it and also just – sort of know uh, how to do it uh, and make it easy on myself. So good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you once again. And of course, uh, we're going to talk about some uh, Dallas Cowboys football because we, of course, are uh, longtime fans of the boys. But I did want to at least touch on the Bucks first, uh, you know, with the Brady v. Belichick game. I'm kind of glad now this is over with, uh, now that uh, circle date on the calendar has passed. But, uh, you know, I find that argument, who was more responsible for the Patriots' success, Brady or Belichick, to be uh, an insane one because you really got to look at all the sum of the parts, I think. Yeah, I don't, I didn't know how to answer it when they were together. I didn't know how to answer it when they split up. And after last night, I still don't know how to answer it. Just because Nick Folk hits the upright from 56 in the rain um, on the last meaningful play of the game doesn't really give me enough to go on to pick a side. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's about winning and losing. Tom Brady won. He becomes the fourth quarterback to defeat all 32 active NFL teams. And as one of my colleagues in Tampa and golf partners put it on his radio show today, the Patriots fans last night learned what it was like to lose to Tom Brady. <laughs> you know, they always kind of wondered why he was so hated. Now they got a taste of it. And, uh, but it wasn't easy on Tom, whether it was emotions, uh, another eh game from the Buccaneers. Uh, and that comes from Ira Kaufman, who I watched some of the game with last night at a promotional appearance for Ira, longtime Buck uh, and NFL, a writer and columnist, and he still is the man responsible for getting anyone involved with the Buccaneers into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I can't answer it. I like the way you look at questions like that. Uh, not answering questions like that is not very popular in today's sports media. So I'm happy there are still people like you who say, why do we have to answer that? Why can't we just respect both of them uh, and acknowledge that both are still doing their thing and very good at what they do? Yeah, and of course, you know, you know, it was obviously to Tampa Bay's benefit that uh, Tom Brady and the New England Patriots had a divorce. You know, and, and, and we've seen over the years that uh, when it gets late in the career for a quarterback, 
you know, these sort of things are just going to be messy. There's no good way for them to separate, <laughs> at least in my opinion. And uh, you know, that said, you know, Tom Brady went on to su- greater success uh, with the Bucks, and then, you know, like, like, like Joe Montana went to the Chiefs. You know, it, it's definitely, you know, why Tom Brady's goat. Uh, but yeah, this is real. Like a situation is that they can't part. It's it's going to be messy. No matter no matter how you slice it. Yeah, I was talking about this with someone this weekend. You know, I just mentioned the four guys who've beaten thirty two uh, other teams, and they all had to change teams. Now Breeze didn't have a choice. San Diego moved on to Philip Rivers from Drew Breeze, and. Breeze didn't justify in his years with San Diego them not using that high pick on Rivers to move on. Uh, we also bring up how Breeze could have been a Miami Dolphin. And Nick Saban sort of passes the buck on this, where Saban could have overruled the, the, the medical on Drew Breeze that said, nah, the shoulder's not there. You might not want to make the financial investment Andrew Brees. Um, and then Favre, that that got messy in Green Bay. We're kind of going down that road again with Aaron Rodgers. And the Colts wanted to move on from Peyton. They weren't convinced he could play again. They had the number one pick, went with Andrew Luck. Peyton and John Elway hooked up. Peyton you know, won a Super Bowl in Denver. And then there are guys like eight, you brought up Marino. I always heard this, Jeff. I don't know if you ever did. Marino was so close to joining the Vikings, he had the playbook. Mm-hmm. And then he, I got this second hand. Marino just, I guess, said, I can't see myself wearing another uniform. I'm done. And then Aikman, he had had so many concussions that I think Jerry convinced him that it was best for, for Troy to not go out there anymore. Well, it was also good for Jerry because of the money Troy was making, and Jerry wanted to move on. And granted, it, it didn't work until an undrafted Tony Romo got his opportunity when he was benched in the middle uh, at halftime of a Monday night game I was at against the Giants in the Bill Parcells days uh, when they realized they actually had something with Tony Romo. So it, it, there, there's, there's so many things in sports, Jeff, where there's no book on how it should be done and how it is done. And this is one of them and how it's playing out with Brady and the rest of his career. The Patriots clearly wanted him to hang it up, and he said no. And he had every right to say no, and it certainly has worked out for him. No no question about it. So uh, let's talk about our Dallas Cowboys, who are off to a 3-1 start, a three-game winning streak after almost beating the Bucs in uh, week number one in Tampa. Um, now I, I'm trying to take my own advice and, and slow my roll because you know the NFL is such a week-to-week business. But how they're doing things right now is impressing me quite a bit. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm right there with you. And since it's been going on, this is 26 years since they've even played in a conference championship game. Uh, it, we are right to be. As you said, slow your roll, or I say cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I just like a lot of things that I'm seeing beyond just them being three and one and how close they were to winning that opening game against the Buccaneers. The thing that seems pretty clear to me, Jeff, is that 
this team is rallying around the return of Dak Prescott and also the addition of Dan Quinn and others on the defensive side of the coaching staff, it is clear that the coaches are doing a good job and the players are doing a good job being receptive to the coaching. Also, I'll just ask you something, Jeff. Remember the last play of the Bucks cowboys game where there were three seconds left, Stuck Up, I think, had kicked the touchback, and Dallas was down, what, they lost by two. So, and I remember there was a cutaway of Dak, and he didn't even have his helmet on on the sideline, and the announcers didn't even pick up on it, and I said, Dak's not in the game. Dallas ran sort of an old single-wing play where Tony Pollard took a direct snap, and they gained about 25 yards before they finally had to do a lateral, and it just didn't work. And I was like, okay, that's creative. That's different. I like that, even though it didn't work. Then, Jeff, remember the end of the first half of the Charger game. Mm -hmm. Similar situation, pass to CeeDee Lamb, lateral to Ezekiel Elliott. Elliott was a few yards from scoring on the last play. Look at the play Dallas ran to put the game away against Carolina. Um, it was sort of a, a an inside handoff that turned into an option play the other way that you don't see in the NFL. This shows the creativity of the Cowboys and their coaching staff, and I think you're seeing that on both sides of the ball. But just those few plays show there's a lot of thought and a lot of preparation going into these game plans. And I, I forget who said it. Um, I don't like Chris Sims, but he might have said it last night on Football Night in America. He said, I'll argue right now Dallas is the most balanced offense in the NFL because a lot of teams don't have big-time running games, um, and the ones that do like Tennessee and Baltimore, right now, Tennessee with their wide receivers banged up, uh, they don't balance it with a, a vertical attack. And Edwards Hilaire still has something to prove in Kansas City. I like that. I like the balance of the Cowboys' offense. And that they can do a almost purely passing game plan against Tampa Bay and nearly win. And then go the very next week, I think they were the second highest uh, running, running plays against the Chargers and they won that game. So it shows the versatility of the players, but also the creativity of the coaching staff as well. Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, Kellen Moore, you know, we're starting to see now that he's in his third season as the OC, to, you know, really finding some identity as the play caller. And, and I'm sure he's getting good guidance from, from McCarthy and the other members of the staff on that. But uh, it also helps to have that arsenal of weapons to play with. When you look at a guy like, you know, you know Cedric Wilson's become a real nice player for them. Uh, you know, as the fourth wide receiver, and the 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 play where they where they run the package with uh with uh, Connor McGovern, the offensive lineman at fullback, uh, love those plays, and and the fact that uh, you know that Zeke and Pollard are you know getting six yards a pop in the backfield is is tremendous. You're seeing some of the same things I'm seeing, and you know, utilizing the 53 man roster, the the days of Robert Newhouse and and Moose and a spot for a fullback on the 53-man appear to be gone. So they take McGovern, 
and they use him in some of those situations because clearly he, he's comfortable lining up um, and, and blocking on the fly and knows what his assignment is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, you see it and I see it the same way. There, there's, there's so much in the NFL that has been seen or that is copied. So whether these things work or they don't, they're at least trying other things. And, Jeff, it's not like when they do them, it's a mess, right? Whether it works or not, the execution is there. Whether the defense stops it or accomplishes its goal is another thing. But these are new looks. I, I, don't, I don't see these things happening with other teams in the NFL, and there are a lot of creative offensive minds out there. Yeah, no question. And, again, just looking at the, the arsenal that, uh, that they have to play with, and, and the talent that they have now looking at the defensive side of the ball, you know, they've been drafting on defense the last few years, and I think that's really starting to pay off. You know, they got some good young guys that are coming in, and uh, Trayvon Diggs is be- becoming an elite uh, corner. Boy, that's something the Cowboys have not had in a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, his interceptions in the first four games, sort of odd that he sits out as Carolina's making the big comeback. Granted, their comeback came up short, but it exposed that there still isn't the depth in that secondary. We are reminded that the Cowboys didn't trade up to get one of the top two corners uh, in the first round of the draft. And as a result of that, they moved back, and they end up getting Micah Parsons, who clearly has come to play. His parents are longtime Cowboys fans. And they have been using him in a variety of roles, and he's wreaking havoc out there and, and very active up front for the defense. But, you know, Brown had, Brown could have ended the game against Carolina, had it go right through his hands. He's had some good plays, but he's, he got beat by Antonio Brown in single coverage in the Buck game for a long score after Dallas had briefly taken the lead. You know what? I'd like to see the, the Cowboys do, and I'm not saying that Sherman was the move, but look at what the Bucks did as they kept losing corners and they just lost Carlton Davis as well. They went out and signed Richard Sherman. Um, I, I would like to see the Cowboys get themselves another body. And granted, they don't have Tom Brady making phone calls, calling Gronk, hey, come here, calling Fournette, hey, come here, calling Antonio Brown, hey, come join me, and then the call to Richard Sherman. They don't have that, but the Cowboys have a lot of star power. They're a very exciting team, and there might be some defensive back out there that can help them, or Jerry can be aggressive before November 2nd and make a deal and bring in some defensive back that can help. I still think they're going to need one. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, Anthony Brown definitely is better in the slot. He's been playing more on the outside this year, and uh, he has definitely exposed uh, in, in that particular situation. But the, the, I think the thing the last couple of weeks that has kind of caught my eye, too, is the presence of a pass rush, uh, which has been uh, uh, lacking in recent years as well, other than, other than Demarcus Lawrence. And uh, that's only going to get fortified when he comes back. And, and they're doing it with a lot of lot of rotations. And uh, and they're doing some blitzing, which I, 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 I like that aggressiveness from Dan Quinn. Yeah, the, the Mike Nolan defense was out of date. That was a bad news for Mike McCarthy last year. And I get that it might have been different if it was a non-COVID year, but you got to do with, you got to work with what the situation is. And uh, 
bringing in Quinn um, from Atlanta. Look, after Atlanta blew the 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl, I just said, you got to blow this thing up. There's no way this group, with this coaching staff, with Matt Ryan, with Julio Jones, they, they can overcome this. They kind of all need to go their separate ways because you don't overcome that. Um, change of scenery would be good. So it was just kind of a, a steady slide for Quinn. It reminded me, Jeff, and you know I'm a Hurricane alum, of the steady slide after Larry Coker won with the Canes in 2001. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of went down a notch or two every year after that. Um, and Dan Quinn clearly knows what he's doing when it comes to defense. I just like the way he coordinates from the booth. He stands up in the booth. He's, he's, got, um, he's got the hat on backwards. And he's got the headset on. And he clearly has a better view from up there. And it, it is working uh, with how active they are uh, and getting these players in the right sets. Uh, sure, they're still giving up a lot of passing yards. But, yeah, there's a, there's a clearly improvement from last year. And at least through the first three games, I, I'm not sure now after four, Jeff, I believe the Cowboys' defense was leading the league in turnovers. Yes. And those big plays mean a lot. Yeah, definitely. Turnovers uh, certainly will uh, turn the game around in your favor, as, as we saw yesterday as they piled it on in the third quarter. Now, my question is you is, what is your faith level in Mike McCarthy? Because I, I, I don't normally set lines on my show, but I'm setting at one and a half the number of games that he might blow with some of his questionable coaching decisions. Uh, he does scare me a little bit in that regard. I hear that criticism. I understand the criticism. I just want to see this season play out. He dealt with the same restrictions. I think first-year head coaches last year uh, and coordinators, it was a very tough spot because you had such limited access to your players prior to training camp. And this year is different. Um, I actually have a little... You know, knowledge of Mike McCarthy because when I was friends with Jim Hazlitt during the years I was working for ESPN, uh, Jim Hazlitt would help me out sometimes with going to events. And Jim was the head coach of the New Orleans Saints. And the Final Four was in New Orleans. And I asked Jim if he could help me with a couple of tickets uh, to the national semifinal game. I didn't stay for the title game. And he just said, no problem. He said, you're going to be sitting next to my offensive coordinator and his son. I hope that's okay. That was Mike McCarthy. Oh, wow. I watched the 2003 Final Four in club seats in the Superdome next to Mike McCarthy before anyone knew who he was. Hmm. And he's a very mild-mannered man, good father, um, just just sports fan. We didn't talk the whole time. I wasn't going to bend his ear, but... I, I, you, just, you know how you get a vibe off someone? And granted, when you go to a Final Four, you're sitting next to someone for about four to five hours. Yeah. And I got a good vibe off him. The, the, the ways the Packers would beat the Cowboys in the, in the you know, mid-2010s uh, always really bothered me. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jerry hired him. If you can't beat him, have him join you. <laughs> and Mike also started to embrace analytics 
uh, in the time he was away from the game. I think that was one of the criticisms from Aaron Rodgers. I've never bought the criticisms from Aaron Rodgers. I respect Aaron Rodgers as a quarterback, but not for much, not for many other things. Um, just because Aaron Rodgers didn't want to play for Mike McCarthy doesn't mean Aaron Rodgers wasn't also part of the reason why the Mike McCarthy, Aaron Rodgers teams only went to and won one Super Bowl. I think Rodgers has to take some of the blame for that as well. You and I went down this road in Orlando with this question, Jeff Allen, when, when um, the Magic were really good, Brian Hill got none of the credit. When the Magic weren't good, Brian Hill was to blame. Much of that happened again with Dwight and Van Gundy, and how did that work out? Mm-hmm. So I don't buy that Mike McCarthy was solely the problem in Green Bay. I think they did pretty good. Um, and this is another opportunity for him, and I think that he's, that he's embraced analytics, that he has Kellen Moore, a consistent voice, in Dak Prescott's helmet. Um, and now Dan Quinn on the defensive side, Mike McCarthy's surrounded by some pretty good people. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And uh and 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 we can't say it enough, you know, what Dak Prescott is doing considering that gruesome injury a year ago, um, you know, is just it's just spectacular. And uh, I I I like to think that you know, they're not you running him as much, which is fine. I don't care to see him uh, you know, get hurt running the football because uh, because his, his arm and decision making is definitely uh, up to up to the task. I just find it interesting that you know you you talked about that that one gadget play when uh, at, at the end of the game they had Pollard run it. After watching Dylan Gabriel go down for UCF on one of those lateral plays, I'm okay with the starting quarterback not being in on that situation. <laughs> I totally understand where you're coming from on that. Was that the Louisville game? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, yes, it was. That wild finish in the Louisville game. Yes, that yeah, was. No, I, I understand that, and I feel the same way as you do. And not only Cowboy fans, but I'm sure a lot of other people out there who may not like the Cowboys, but they they wanted to see Dak Prescott come back. Um, there was a there was an outpouring of support for him last year when he was injured, and we're happy when the Cowboys didn't turn their back on him when they could have and not giving him a big contract to continue as the quarterback of the Cowboys. So it has worked out. We are only four games in, but I cringe like most Cowboy fans and most people in the NFL who rooted for Dak to come back, even if it was uh, for the Cowboys to lose, because you don't want to see Dak have another injury like that. Yeah, absolutely not. Uh, Of course, you uh, host uh, your fantasy football podcast, and... uh, uh, we won't ask you for weekly advice because that's what we want people to listen to your show for. But uh, anything for the season that you that you could advise people on, and does the you know, and what difference is the seventeen game uh, scenario uh, going to make in fantasy football this year? Good question. Not much. It just it, it gives us another week of fantasy football, um, much like it gives us another week of uh, of of the NFL. It gives us more of what we like and it doesn't oversaturate things. So um, what I will bring up was, based on the numbers of 2020 uh, and and how I sort of analyze things uniquely, I went into 2021 and said, I'm I'm not going to be one of those people that drafts running back first and second round in my fantasy drafts. For better or worse, I'm not going to do it. In one league, 
I did not draft a running back until round four. And in another league, I did take Derrick Henry with the second pick just because I've always believed in Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry is the dinosaur. He's what Emmett Smith and Barry Sanders used to be mm. and why PPR was created and is no longer necessary. There's no running back that touches the ball as much in the NFL as Derrick Henry. And I want touches. I don't understand why targets are talked about by fantasy football owners and players. Targets means zero. Touches, every touch is the potential for points. You want touches, not targets. So that's why I took Derrick Henry, but then I didn't take another running back until round four or round five in that league. And so far, so good. I'm not saying I'm 4-0, although I may be 3-1 in one of my leagues, depending on what someone does tonight for my opponent. But the, the, way, the way it works with running backs, we've, got, we've become such a pass-heavy league that a lot of your points, explosive points, are going to come from dual-threat quarterback or a wide receiver. And just grabbing any available running back in those first few rounds doesn't always work out. Sure, you, you have guys who put up good numbers, or Aaron Jones in week two for the Packers put up great numbers, and, and Zeke was RB1 after his Monday night performance in week three. But for, for every guy drafted maybe in the first two rounds of fantasy drafts this year at running back, there's another guy who was either undrafted or drafted to be an RB3 or an RB4 that is putting up top 10 numbers on a weekly basis. And it, it, it sort of spins like a wheel. So that, that's been my approach this year, that maybe the running back position is overvalued by fantasy managers, and we'll see where I am come the fantasy playoffs if it's true or not. And, of course, the uh, Tampa Bay Rays about to go into the postseason, and I'm still amazed and befuddled how a team that can be so good for so many years can be so incognito, not just across Major League Baseball, but in their own town. Well, that's because their town is St. Pete, and the majority of the people they want to come to the games live in Tampa, and nothing's going to solve that I grew up in St. Pete, went to public school in Pinellas County, and then as an adult, after coming back from the University of Miami, I moved to Tampa and would never go back to Pinellas County. Now, that said, I did attend a Rays game on paid tickets uh, on the last homestand, and it was the first time I had gone to Tropicana Field in about three or four years. Jeff, I'll be honest, since I've retired, I watch the sports that I want to watch where when I worked for good people like you or, or, or ESPN or Sporting News, I had to watch everything, right? You have to be knowledgeable on everything that's out there. I don't watch everything anymore, and I haven't watched much baseball the last 10 years. I still know the sport, but I looked at the Tigers lineup and the Tigers Rays game, Jeff, and here's what the lineup looked like to me. Question, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, Cabrera. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That's what the Tigers look, <laughs> lineup look like to me because I don't follow the game. Uh, people will argue there's nothing wrong with Tropicana Field and St. Pete, and you're not going to convince them otherwise. And then for every one of those people, you'll have somebody 
who says, yeah, there's a lot wrong with Tropicana Field and a lot wrong with the stadium being in St. Petersburg. So I'm just one of those that isolate the two, that from a on-field baseball only, how do you win games and how do you compete standpoint, they are fantastic. And as far as everything else, I, I don't have much of an opinion, uh, certainly not a favorable one, based on uh, what the franchise does in terms of ownership, marketing, um, and uh, the stadium issue. But the on-field product and putting that 25-man roster together on a regular basis annually is spectacular. Yeah, of course. You you mentioned the the off field stuff, and you know they're talking about the you know the 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 topic of the split with Montreal came up again. And to me, it's a ludicrous plan plan to begin with to try to share a baseball team amongst two cities. And you know, you also got to think the players have to be. You know, I know they're they're focused on bigger things, but that has to be a little annoying to them. I would think. Well, the whole thing is annoying. I mean, it's one of the things, Jeff, during the pandemic. They didn't have to worry about because there were no fans in the stands. Hmm. That's one of the reasons I, I wondered openly why the Rays got back to the World Series in 2020 was because they never had to answer questions about why aren't people coming to watch you play because they weren't allowed. That was gone. That elephant in the room was eliminated by the pandemic. And they go to the World Series and and the Dodgers go best of them in six games. So... Um, now here we are, and, you know, even when the Rays were, were you know, originally were going to promote that plan during the playoffs and they backed off, and then what their team president showed up at something in, in Tampa to do some public speaking, and he talked about how tickets for the ALDS are still available as if it's an insult that they can't sell tickets for the ALDS. It, it just continues to be um, uh, this tug of war, and you know, either someone very strong in Major League Baseball or someone very strong with the city of St. Petersburg uh, needs to move and force this issue and put an end to it. Um, I, I'm not that person. Yeah. Um, I, I have very unique ideas on how to end it, but I'll be honest. If the Rays leave, it doesn't change anything about where I live the quality of my way of life and um, just what I get out of uh, my entertainment dollar in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, I would rather them leave and leave sooner rather than later than continue to hear about split plans between two countries that, as you put it, Jeff, are ludicrous. I'd rather them just go. Yeah, and of course to expect you know, two two different cities to build new stadiums. You know, I mean, I could see Montreal being desperate enough to pops possibly do it with hopes of getting the team long term. But uh, yeah, they totally are uh, are are smoking something a little funny as far as that goes. But uh, a franchise that uh, has it all going on, the Tampa Bay Lightning, back to back Stanley Cups. You know, I think there were some naysayers about 2020 with the pandemic year, but uh, they were quickly shut up by what the Lightning did last year. They were, and I, I made the argument all along that while it's very difficult to repeat the Stanley Cup champions, the reason, some of the reasons for that were eliminated based on 
the nature of the Stanley Cup playoffs in um, 2019, and then, um, I'm sorry, or in, yeah, 2020, because think about it, Jeff. So these guys played, uh, what, roughly 70 games, and then the season stopped, and they had four and a half months off. Then they come back after basically an off season, and the Lightning made a, a, a playoff run. They won 16 meaningful games. You know, they had a round robin first three that, okay, that doesn't really count. And then they, they win the Stanley Cup. Okay. That's easier than the normal 82 regular season games right into the Stanley Cup playoffs. You played 70, four and a half months off, then played and won just the playoffs. I know you didn't have as much time off, but you still did 74 and a half months off and then had to win uh, 16 games. Then last season, the season where you're trying to repeat, Jeff, they didn't have to play 82. They played 56. They played roughly two-thirds of the, the regular season that defending champs normally have to play. Another advantage before the playoffs started. So that's why I thought, yeah, they can do this. It's not as difficult to defend because of the, the time off and you know, the nature of the, the schedules. So this year, it's, it's obviously different. You know, it's a normal 82-game season with full travel and everything. Yeah, now I'd say, okay, they're granted, they're not coming off an 82-game season before their run to the Stanley Cup. The bigger questions are, did you lose too much by losing your third line? Um, and is there a trickle-down effect to the fourth line? Because they kept their defense pretty much intact. They lost Savard. Okay. They can overcome that, even if Foot isn't what his dad was. But the bigger question is, below their top six forwards, do they have enough to roll four lines when it really counts again in the Stanley Cup playoffs? That's the biggest question. And, of course, uh, one quick thought. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know anybody who plays as much golf as you do uh, based on uh, the postings I see on Facebook, but uh, uh, did, you, did you have any uh, concluding thoughts on the Ryder Cup? I didn't watch any of it. Okay. I am, not a, I am not a fan of the Ryder Cup, and I'm happy to tell you why. Okay. To me, professional golf at its highest level is an individual sport and not a team sport. Hmm. Um, I feel that much of what the Ryder Cup presents is an infomercial to get people excited about golf and how the Ryder Cup is presented. I don't buy it. Uh, I also don't buy that it's a big deal for your legacy. Jack Nicholas won 18 majors. End of story. Mm -hmm. You don't, you, you're, he doesn't answer questions about, well, how'd you do in Ryder Cup play or President Cup play? Tigers won 15 majors. That, that's the headline. Then you can get into everything else. Un majors are the most important thing not team events. And I say it also about President's Cup. And I'll also say this to people who claim they love the Ryder Cup. 
but then come April, they're going to say they love the Masters. I'm going to say, no, you have to pick. Because, <laughs> Jeff, they couldn't be more opposite. They, they couldn't be more opposite other than there are guys out there with sticks hitting, or hitting a round ball into a cup. Everything else is different. You can't love both. And if you had to pick one, the true golf fan, 99% of the time, picks the Masters because the green jacket means more. Yeah, you can't. Uh, I can't argue that logic uh, as far as that as far as that goes. Well, Todd, it's always a blast to have you on. So I definitely would like you to uh, make some shameless plugs for your golf tour and everything else you got going on. So the floor is yours for that. Yes, I uh, I have hosted golf tournaments um, as far north as Black Diamond, as far south as River Hall in uh, outside of Fort Myers. Uh, I have host Todd Wright Tour 25 was at Walt Disney World. I'd like to get back there. Um, a majority of my events are in the greater Tampa Bay area. And for people that would like to just ask me questions about playing in my events that are open to the public, they are team events, as I think amateur events should be. They're team events. It keeps everybody moving. It protects bad shots. It protects bad players. That's for enjoyment rather than playing for millions of dollars like PJ Tour or European tour professionals play for. They can email me at ToddWrightGolf at gmail.com, ToddWrightGolf at gmail.com. The Fantasy Football Podcast, if you just Google Todd Wright Fantasy Football Podcast, you should see it come up. It is distributed by a very popular website in Tampa Bay called JoeBucksFan.com, but it's also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And then my non-fantasy podcast is the Todd Wright Podcast. We're about 172 or 173 episodes in. Uh, there is no fantasy content. It's just me talking about whatever I want, including a few months ago how I wanted someone to save the show manifest, and someone did. <laughs> it worked. TV shows can be saved for fans of ours that need closure. Uh, the Todd Wright Podcast is available on Google Podcasts and Stitcher. It is no longer on Apple Podcasts for some reason, and also JoeBucksFan.com. And again, they can see me on uh, Central Florida News 13, this fall, making appearances on Face Off, as well as Spectrum Bay News 9 in Tampa Bay. All right, Todd, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you are one busy guy, and uh, we appreciate you taking some time to be on with me uh, once again, as usual. Todd Wright, thanks again. You're welcome, Jeff. And we'll be right back to close things out with the TV theme right after this. No Republicans, no Democrats, no team from Washington, no team with a star on the side of their head. We don't even talk about alpha and beta storms around here. And if you believe all of that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Captain and Company in the morning, join me 9 to noon. Weekday mornings on OldSchool101.com because class is always in session around here. Virus or no virus.
So, you know, since Todd and I worked uh, at WGTO in the 90s, I thought I would go to a, uh, a 1990s TV show, Step by Step, that aired for seven seasons on ABC as part of their TGI Friday Night lineup from 1991 to 1970, 1997. Excuse me. Then it moved to CBS, where it uh, tagged on a couple more seasons until 1998. Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers star single parents Frank and Carol each with three children who wed and form a blended family. Hmm, that sounds somewhat familiar. Uh, Frank Lambert, a divorced contractor, has three children, JT, Alicia, Brendan. Carol Foster, a widowed salon owner, also has three kids, Dana, Karen, and Mark. Both families live in Port Washington, Wisconsin. And Frank and Carol marry while vacationing in Jamaica after a whirlwind courtship. And Frank plans an identical vacation to accidentally run into Carol. They had planned to keep their marriage a secret, but Frank accidentally reveals to JT they are married during a barbecue he and Carol hold to introduce all the children, leaving them surprised and also angry at first. And each episode depicts typical situations for a new blended family, and the differences usually cause arguments or resentments, but over time, they grow to tolerate and become loyal to one another and be a family. The Foster family, as we said, Suzanne Summers was Carol Foster Lambert. Works as a beautician, runs a hair salon out of a room in her house. Stacy Keenan is Dana Foster, the eldest child in the Foster family, depicted as smart, wise, cracking, and a feminist. She's often being openly hostile to the Lambert kids. And of course, Stacy Keenan uh, broke into the scene in the 80s on My Two Dads uh, with Greg, Evan, Greg Evigan and uh, Paul Reiser. Angela Watson was Karen Foster, the middle child, an aspiring model and sometimes a country singer. Portrayed as vain and not very bright, but has some frequent moments of level-headedness. Christopher Castile was Mark Foster, the youngest kid in the Foster family, until Lily is born. He's into computers and academics and a tendency to be timid. The Lambert family, of course, as we said, Patrick Duffy was Frank Lambert. Uh, he's a laid-back, avid sports fan, particularly of the Green Bay Packers. Brandon Call is J.T. Lambert, the oldest son. He's a slacker, also into sports like his dad and a Packers fan, and academically challenged, which is later attributed to dyslexia. And he resents his new stepfamily, particularly Dana. Christine Lacking, Lacking as Alicia, the middle child of the Lamberts, tomboyish all-American girl who later matures and softens, typically dressed by her nickname, the more masculine Al, and is rarely referred to as Alicia, and several episodes during the seventh season center on her newfound interest in acting, and also openly hostile to her stepfamily, and Josh Byrne was Brandon Lambert, the youngest child in the Lambert family, and uh, he is a uh, shy, carefree, and one of the more accepting of the new family dynamics. And Sasha Mitchell was Cody Lambert. He's Frank's nephew, lives in the driveway, and uh, appears as a recurring cast member first season, then a regular cast member in the second season. Had the crew cut in the Valley teen accent, often shows maturity and intelligence beyond his dim-witted veneer. Uh, he was written out of the series after the fifth season. He returned to guest star for one episode in season seven, and he had previously had acted with uh, uh, Duffy, on Dallas, he was uh, Bobby Ewing's nephew, James Beaumont. So there you go. Step-by-step, step, our TV theme for this week. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88, on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs.
Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer Cell is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.